from God's holy word. Luke 9, beginning in verse 1. And he, Jesus, called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed, because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Thus far we read in God's holy word, may he bless it to all who hear, believe, and obey it. It's been said that one learns best by doing. I enjoy a good lecture, and I enjoy lecturing. Join me in Sunday school sometime. You'll see that's true. But we learn best by doing. That's why many colleges over the last several uh, years and decades have turned their students uh, towards something called an internship. Before you graduate and go look for a job, it would be good to connect with a company and get an internship and and get a little on-the-job training and see what it's really like. I remember several of my kids saying, oh, Dad, this summer I have an internship and I'm going to work for this company or that company. And they're going to pay me as I learn. An internship, what a wonderful idea to to take uh, what you've learned, or I guess the, the definition is this, is any official or formal program to provide practical experience for beginners in an occupation or profession. The most important element, says this one source, uh, of internships is the integration of classroom knowledge and theory with practical application and skills. What we're seeing here in Luke chapter 9 is an internship for apostles. When you see this phrase, the 12, it should probably be capitalized because it's a proper noun. It's referring to the 12 apostles whom Jesus called to himself who would be designated as his official, empowered, and authorized apostles in putting together the church and the scriptures in the months after Jesus departs. This is really their first on-the-job training, their internship. Now, when we get to chapter 10 of Luke, and that's several weeks away, we'll see that Jesus does something similar with 70-some people, not just the 12. And that's just another practice for many disciples to partake of in 
chapter 10. We'll get to that. But here, it's particularly the 12, and it's an internship to make sure they grasp several things. And there are lessons here for us, even though we're not apostles. So let's take a look at what Jesus tells them and what he wants them to be doing, because that's what he wants them to train us to be doing. And the patterns of how it's done are still valid for us today. Let's first look at their twofold mission and their means of completing the mission. The twofold mission and their means of completing the mission. Chapter 9 began, he called the 12 together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And here's verse 2. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. So there's their twofold mission, to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. In verse 6, which talks about the implementation of that, it says, they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. The twofold mission for God's people. What were they specifically supposed to do? He sent them out uh, to proclaim the kingdom. That word for proclaim or preach is, uh, is the word that is used for a herald. I don't know if you have watched uh, movies about the Middle Ages or read books about the Middle Ages when, you know, before they had microphones and loudspeakers or teleprompters or billboards. When a king was coming to a village, they'd send a herald ahead of time saying, hey, everybody, clean the place up. The king is coming. Good news. The king is coming here. Be ready. He'll be here at dawn tomorrow. And so a herald would give that news. Or if there was some other news, the herald might walk around the capital city and proclaim something the king wanted known. The herald. That's what Jesus told his disciples to do. Go to these villages and speak up and make it known that the king is here. I've come that you might have life. Proclaim the kingdom of God is at hand. This is the primary mission of Jesus, and it's the primary mission of the church to get the gospel out, to bring good news to the people walking in darkness. If you remember, maybe not, back in Luke chapter 4, Jesus said something about this being his mission. Near the end of Luke chapter 4 and verse 43, I'll start in 42. Uh, When it was day, Jesus departed and went to a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving leaving them. But, verse 43, he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Luke 4, verse 43. The main thing Jesus came to do as he walked about for those four, three years with his disciples was to bring the good news of the kingdom, to be present and to announce hope and life and salvation to all who would hear. He says, I was sent for this purpose. And we know with Jesus, he was sent not only to proclaim the good news, but to procure the good news. 
at the cross, defeating sin and being able to say it is finished. And when he rose from the dead, that was confirmation of that mission accomplished. So what were the disciples saying? They were saying similar things. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe. So the very first things that the mission entailed was they would talk about the kingdom of God and the presence of the king. They'd talk about Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah has come. Repent and believe in him. But they'd also been sitting at the feet of Jesus learning many things. They could explain certain things about the law. They could explain certain things about the the prophecies of the Messiah. And they could tell others about the importance of God's commandment to love God and to love our neighbor. And perhaps they included talk about the coming judgment. For they've heard Jesus speak of that as well. What they had heard and learned they proclaimed and it's summarized under that heading preaching the kingdom. And that had consequences for their Jewish audiences, did it not? Before we go on, I need to underline the role of preaching. It was central to the work and ministry of Jesus, and it is central to the church. The great bishop of Liverpool back in the 1800s, J.C. Ryle, John Charles Ryle, said, Preaching is God's chosen instrument for doing good to souls. By it, sinners are converted, inquirers are led on, and saints are built up. A preaching ministry, he says, is absolutely essential to the health and prosperity of a local church. The pulpit is the place where the chief victories of the gospel have always been won. And I'm in the middle of preaching. This brings a sense of awe to any preacher who would endeavor to do this. To stand before a people and say, this is what God's word says. Always pray for your preacher during the week and even during the sermon. But realize that Jesus wants the proclamation to go out. He didn't just cherry pick among his disciples. Okay, uh, Peter, you're pretty vocal. You be the preacher and uh, Thaddeus, uh, you, you help the sick. No, he, he just told them all. With their various personalities, experiences and gifts. To be about this kingdom mission. But it was twofold. It wasn't only proclaim the kingdom and present Christ as the Messiah, but it also involved healing and helping. Do you see that? It's very clear to preach, but also to heal, verse 3. And that's what they did according to verse 6. And part of that preaching and healing also meant tangling with demons. Notice how verse 1 says, He called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure all diseases. Notice the Bible has two categories here. The author of this gospel, we know him as Dr. Luke. He was a physician by training. He knows the difference between epilepsy and demon possession. The modern world wants to think these primitives couldn't figure those things out. Oh, the man is just feverish and babbling. He's not possessed by a demon. Well, 
Luke knew the difference. He saw the difference. And the Bible says there is a difference. And both were challenges. Demonic activity has always been strongest in the history of humanity when a prophet of God is present or when the Son of God was present on earth. Jesus equipped them. We'll talk about the power in just a minute. But he wanted them to help. And if someone was demon-possessed or afflicted or there was a demon to be opposed, do that. Or if someone had uh, broken a leg or someone had bleeding or a fever, help them as best you can. I'm giving you power and I'm giving you authority to do that. Why? Why is there help and healing called for? Because it would confirm the validity of the message. It would confirm the validity of the message. Didn't Jesus, especially in John's gospel, it's so very clear, the seven signs of John, those seven miracles, they were signs. And think of a sign, even just the, the hand with the finger pointing. Here's a sign. What you're looking for is right there. The miracles were signs to the veracity of the messenger and the power and truth of the message. The, the clearest example is that time Jesus was hearing a paralytic and he says, your sins are forgiven. And people laugh. Who can forgive sins but God alone? A lot of talk there, Jesus. He says, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven or to cause this paralytic to stand up and walk? I say to you, take up your bed and walk. They go together. The proclamation of salvation, conquering sin, and then conquering disease or demons. They go together in this establishment phase of the church, in the ministry of Jesus and in the ministry of these apostles. Does that have relevance today? Do we need to be ready to face demons when we walk out on Moe Road or in Clifton Park? They're out there somewhere. But in this era, we don't often encounter it so blatantly as when Jesus provoked them by his presence on earth. But we must do what we can, church. We must do caring acts for those that are ill. We need to be the ones visiting the sick. We know historically, in the history of Western civilization, it was Christians who established hospitals. It was Christians who established hotels to show hospitality. It, it was Christians who were to be like the good Samaritan and help those in need. That's our track record. And the history of Christianity has some major blemishes, don't get me wrong, but we have been a blessing to humanity as the people of God because of this exhortation to heal and to help. But interestingly, on the thought of demons today, I was reading the, the book by David Lyle Jeffrey, a commentator that often sees things uh, 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 in, in a fresh light. He was thinking about this today. Demons? He said, it's not too much subtlety to suggest that in a culture of many rampant addictions including in our own case, addiction to the gratifications of obsessive materialism, sexual licentiousness, pornography, alcohol, or drugs. That's a short list, but pretty accurate. 
one may perceive in these things the shadow of an I can't say the word analogy, analogous dark entrapment. He sees something in these behaviors that have gripped modern men that are analogous to demon possession. The addict feeling so powerless against the pornography. The addict unwilling to give up his opioids. Our culture has given way. Christians are called to help. This twofold mission also included the means to accomplish the mission. Jesus gives them power and authority. And the two go together. One is the authorization to act and the other one is the ability to act. He wanted these apostles to be able to do both. To have his imprimatur. They go in his name and they represent him as they go. The word apostle means sent. They are commissioned. They are like ambassadors spokesmen serving Jesus. And they would use their power and their signs to confirm their office and their authority. Again, for them, these things would work together. They would hear the Messiah's come and, oh yeah, well, if the Messiah comes, the lame are going to leap and the blind are going to see. And the disciples, these apostles, could say, bring us your blind. Bring us your lame. You have any lame neighbors in your neighborhood? Let's go see them. And they would take the power and authority to confirm their message. And boy, would they have an audience. Did you hear? The man staying at Bob's house healed a neighbor of his blindness. Let's go talk to him. What's going on? It's not by me that I'm able to do this, but by Jesus of Nazareth, who is the Christ sent among us. He has given me power to do this and to make him known. The kingdom of God is in hand. And then they would spill the message. And the neighborhood would be affected and the town would be affected. Not everyone would believe. We see that. Jesus would, would prepare them. And we'll talk about the moving on in just a minute. But notice here that Jesus gives them the means to accomplish the mission. Well, if we still have the mission, has Jesus given us the means? Do we have power and authority? It was to the church that Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom. Not to a pope, don't get me started on that. But he gave it to the church. The key of the gospel to open the kingdom. We have authority to preach the good news. I can tell you, I can tell anyone listening to my voice that if you repent and believe, if you call on the name of the Lord from your heart, you shall be saved. Quoting Romans 10. I can tell you what the Bible says and God keeps his word. I am a spokesman for this gospel. I've been authorized as have all Christians. We've all received our commission. Do you remember how Matthew 28 ends? Jesus said after his resurrection, looking at his gathered people, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Interesting, he talks about authority. And then he says this, go therefore. He's commissioning Christians and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, 
And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Clifton Park Community Church, this is part of our calling. And how about power? Jesus had told the first disciples to wait in the upper room, using the the language of Acts 1.8. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You will receive power. And every Christian is indwelt by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of power. And no one can convert someone else by our own articulations, by our persuasion, by our personality. It's only the Holy Spirit who can change a heart. And we are led by that same Spirit. The Holy Spirit is present here. He may claim a seeker today. He may hear the cry of a heart and may even bring you to cry out in faith. You see, church, as we work in this broken world filled with addictions, how do we help? We have the Spirit of God, the power of God, the good news of the gospel and the truth of God's word in our hands. As Paul would write to the church in Corinth, a church that had many gifts and blessings, he'd remind them how it works. 2 Corinthians 10 has these words. Paul wrote, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war, spiritual war, according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare, the tools of our mission, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power. To destroy strongholds, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. We have the tools. And we can deal with the truth and apply the truth and see lives changed through the gospel, through the word of God, primarily. Yes, we want to have good laws on the books of our nation. Yes, we want our community standards to be where they should be. In the school, in the marketplace, those things are all appropriate. But the primary mission is to take the gospel, the truth of God, and see hearts and minds changed by the spirit of God. A twofold mission and a twofold means for us even today. Second heading this morning, there are these difficult words that Jesus adds to the mission. It's a big mission, and they've just been given authority, like a badge and power. They're ready to go, but he says this as well, back in Luke chapter 9, verse 3. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey. No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. I I recently traveled, and I make sure to pack. I took my bigger suitcase so I didn't have to pack very carefully. I could just throw stuff in. It's going to be hot or cold. I put the stuff in. I took more than two tunics, more than two pair of shoes. I took some medications. And, of course, because I have a, a loving partner, we brought some snacks for the car, some healthy, some fun. We packed for our journey, seven and a half hours driving, and we took bags, staffs, 
These guys were going from town to town for a while. Jesus says, don't take anything. The manner of the mission itself was a test. And it was difficult. It was trying, but it had purpose. He first says, take nothing. Minimal equipage, says one commentator. In part because of the urgency of the mission. I want you to get out there and I want you to learn these lessons quickly. That was part of Jesus' plan for these apostles in their internship. They can learn the lessons by taking a bag and a staff, but you learn them very quickly when you take nothing. Why? Because these men were to be the foundation. The apostles are discussed with the prophets as the foundation of the church. It was critical training for them as an exercise of their trust in God. It would develop their faith quickly and firmly. Would God provide? Yes. They needed to learn to trust God for everything. So Jesus puts them out there in this particular commissioning. Go to that village. It's a long walk. Where are you going to stay when you get there? I don't know. What are you going to eat when you get there? I don't know. What are you going to do if you need a fresh pair of clothes? I don't know. But they trusted the one who sent them. It's implied here. Take nothing but walk by faith. Take your faith. Take your trust in the one who sends you. And take it seriously. I don't know if your faith has ever been tried that abruptly. But the times will come when God works that way. Is this a model for today? Uh, I, I, I don't know if you know church history or where the Francis, Francis, Franciscans came from. Francis of Assisi, uh, he was converted and he started this itinerant ministry of poverty. No bags, no, not, well, they, they eventually had some kind of bag and staff. But they, they took these verses and said, this must be the model. If we're going to go out and help the church back in the 11, 1200s. And others have followed it as well. But it's a good example of bad exegesis. That is not the norm for all believers for all times. Again, this is a particular training for the apostles. And when Jesus gets to the training of the 70 in the next chapter, there is something similar, and we'll revisit this. But Jesus was teaching them in a very particular way. We have to remember that at other times, in in Luke chapter 22, Jesus says, if you don't have a sword, buy one because you're going to need it. And Jesus did teach that we should count the cost before we begin an endeavor. So you can't just pluck one verse out and make it the mandate for a whole ministry of itinerant poverty. Because there's also the danger of putting God to the test. So this verse has been abused. But just remember the difference in this setting, by the way. These apostles in ancient Israel, hospitality was a critical importance. You know this from the the things we've learned over the years about the Jewish people. They they had a, a... a tremendous burden and privilege to do hospitality well throughout the ancient world. 
And so Jesus knew that sending out these disciples, these Christian missionaries among the Jews, that they could expect hospitality when they showed up in the village. If there were Jews there, it was incumbent upon them to practice hospitality. So their context is different. There's no such expectation in modern-day New York. So there are critical differences, but Jesus says, take nothing as a test to develop their faith. He also says, stay put. Did you see that in verse 4? And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. When you get to the village, don't be bouncing from house to house to house, looking for the most comfortable guest room or the best cook and then staying with them. Uh, this, This is very practical and it's preventative advice. Jesus wants them to avoid playing favorites. Jesus wants them to avoid uh, looking like opportunists. So there's that negative protection that this principle employs, but it will also develop positively contentment and focus. The longer you're with someone, the more you get to know them. New opportunities will arise if you're there for several days that might not be available to you if you went to house to house to house to house. You get to know them and speak to them and they get to see the genuineness of your witness. So it's wisdom all around in this exhortation to stay put. It would encourage us to have greater contentment and not pine away. Oh, I wish I was in that church or in that neighborhood or in this circle of people. Focus on where God has put you. And then that third uh, exhortation uh, about uh, uh, if you have to depart, uh, move on as needed. Verse 5, and wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. Well, what do we learn there? We learned that you can expect some people not to buy into your message. Oh, that miracle of clearing, cleaning up the blind man's sight. I don't believe that. There's some trick involved. I don't believe the, the healings. I don't believe uh, in the message. You guys are just free loafers. Get out of my house. If you've ever tried to share your faith, you know that some people reject the message. Jesus is, is telling them to expect that. They have power and they have authority. But as it was with Jesus, not everyone who heard believed. And then there's this odd comment about shaking the dust off your feet. That was a demonstration of judgment upon Israel. It's Leon Morris, one of the great uh, insightful scholars of evangelical faith. Leon Morris said, Uh, something to the fact that in the ancient world, the Jews made a common practice when they were traveling through Gentile lands and when they finally got back home to the promised land, as they crossed the border, they'd shake the dust of the Gentile territories off their feet, saying, we don't want that stuff in our promised land. I'm home finally. Those dogs can keep their dust. And so that was their mindset. They would show disdain for the Gentiles even as they crossed the border back into home. So what does Jesus do? He tells his Christian apostles, 
when you're in the homes of these Jewish families and they reject you, as you depart, do this. Shake the dust off your feet as a warning to them. As Leon Morris put it, the disciples shaking the dust from their feet declared in symbol that Israelites who rejected the kingdom were no better than Gentiles and they did not belong to the people of God. You reject the Messiah, you are not a part of the people of God, symbolically. This was a potent act, not a cryptic act. We don't understand it because we don't live in those times, but it made sense, and I'm sure it got under the skin of those who rejected the apostles. But maybe, just maybe, someone was pushed to reconsider the gospel. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and his companions were leaving a place. Acts 13 verse 51 says, But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. They did this symbolically to the Jews who would understand that they were being written off because of their rejection of the gospel. Christians... As we share with someone, we don't take off our shoes. That wouldn't be understood. But if we're rejected, we might need to say something to fulfill this part of the mission. Say, hey, these things are very serious. Your eternity hangs on accepting or rejecting Jesus. We'll see that in Sunday school with 1 John chapter 5. 1 John 5, it says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. So our parting words ought to be true and warn. The bridge is out on the path that you are taking. There's only one way to be right with God. This passage of Jesus commissioning the the apostles, putting them through this uh, internship, and it's very successful. Uh, We'll pick it up in verse 10 when they return. But there's this extra paragraph that talks about one person who was affected by this mission. Let's go back to verse 7 of Luke chapter 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening. There's the connection between the mission and this experience. Okay, somebody heard all the villages were talking about something and miracles were happening and something's happening and it's big. Back to the text. Herod heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because he said it was because it was said by some that John, meaning John the Baptist, had been raised from the dead by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had arisen. And Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. Herod hears about Jesus. Herod hears there's a Messiah. He, he can't quite piece it all together, but he's interested You know what, my takeaway is the mission was successful. 
people were talking about Jesus and people were asking the right question, who is Jesus? That's why Luke has written his gospel. Who is Jesus? He's not just a teacher. He's the son of God. He has power to back up his message. He delivers. He saves. He changes lives. He gives us hope of heaven. Herod hears all this stuff happening. But he also has this haunted mind. He has curiosity, but also anxiety. His past sin has risen to the surface. Some people were saying that John the Baptist has come back. But John the Baptist was dead. How did John the Baptist die, Herod? Herod, in a, in a, in a fit of lust and, and celebration at a party, promised the dancing girl anything she wanted. And the dancing girl was advised to ask for the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And Herod, in front of all his guests, said, Okay, I'll behead John the Baptist for you. And the head was brought in on a platter. He had John in prison because he didn't like some of the preaching of John the Baptist about sin and adultery and fornication. And we lock those people up when we don't like what they're saying. But he killed John the Baptist. And his sin had reappeared. J.C. Ryle said Herod's sin had found him out. The prison and the sword had silenced John the Baptist's tongue. But they cannot silence the voice of Herod's inward man. God's truth can neither be silenced nor bound nor killed. And Herod was haunted by that and feeling guilty. His conscience was like the blinking lights on your car dashboard. They won't go away until you do something about them. As Douglas Milne said, our conscience remains a real force in the memory of worldly people. Wealth and status, such as with Herod, are no shield against an evil conscience that operates on the basis of your past choices and actions. Your conscience can, can cause great anxiety. But we also note that though the conscience is powerful, it cannot save us. It doesn't lead us to Christ. Our conscience is, is imperfect as a guide. But it's there, even though it can be seared or hardened. And it often, as Ryle says, it often raises a mighty testimony against sin in the sinner's heart. And makes us feel that it is an evil and bitter thing to oppose God. It's interesting, when J.C. Ryle was writing his comments on this, he was writing for his grandchildren. And he took time at this juncture in his book to say, young people, any young people here today? That's under 50. Kids. You may not understand how this works, but kids, teenagers... Your conscience is there. And if you sin and nobody finds out about it today or for a few years to come, God can awaken that. Out of sight, out of mind may work for some, but God sees all and God knows all. You need to bring all your sins to Jesus. And when you feel guilty about something, you need to address it. So kids, talk to your parents, talk to your Sunday school teacher, talk to a pastor or elder when you feel guilty that you've done something wrong. Because the good news is Jesus helps with that guilt.
He has plenteous grace. Grace greater than all my sin. I know that. But Herod didn't. Herod was troubled and he only takes halfway measures. And this is a really important lesson before we go, my friends. Herod's halfway message. He said, oh, I need to seek him. He sought to seek him. That's how verse 9 went. Well, if you're King Herod and you have some resources, I think you could get in your chariot and go find this guy. So he was a seeker from his sofa. He was a couch potato inquirer. He never went to any of the meetings. He didn't pursue any of the apostles. He didn't go look for Jesus. He said, you know, I really should do something about that guilt. I really should look into this and figure it out. And, you know, one day he did. Jesus was brought to him. Oh, the mighty Jesus. We'll get to it in many, many weeks in Luke 23. And the key verse there in Luke 23, although he listened, Jesus didn't say anything. He heard all about what Jesus was done. Verse, Luke 23, verse 11. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him. And sent him back to Pilate. When Herod had the opportunity, it didn't happen. He only goes halfway. He's, he's open. He's curious. He's interested. I've heard some things. They sound interesting. But he never came to faith in Jesus. And there are a lot of people that think their spiritual curiosity, their spiritual openness and interest is sufficient it's not i remember talking with someone who was uncertain about their standing with christ they said well it's like getting married or not you might be engaged you might like someone you might even ask them hey are we heading this direction but until you actually are married you're not married until you actually give your life to christ or or seek the lord or confess and believe the lord you're not joined to him Repent and believe is at the heart of this proclamation. Herod goes halfway and falls short. Learn from Herod. We've got to wrap up. Let me give you three very important things to think about as we end. First, we must see the essential missionary character of Christianity. We must see the essential missionary character of Christianity. Christianity, said one, is a missionary movement that Jesus himself inaugurated. We're part of that. And although we're in this place called New York, we're in the county called Saratoga, in the town of Clifton Park, we are not here to preserve Clifton Park for the ages. We are here to proclaim the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We are here to bring good news to our neighbors as we love God and love them. And we bring the good news with compassion and good deeds. And I am so afraid that many Bible-believing Christians are distracted and engaging the world with the weapons of the world to fight the battles of the world and to fight sin with legislation and slogans and information. The essential mission of who we are and why we're here has the gospel at the heart of it. 
and we are being distracted. The devil is distracting believers left and right. And instead of going to the villages and staying in the homes and and meeting the people and building the bridges so that we can live out the message and invade their lives with good news, we're building walls. We're vilifying, we're labeling. We're battling in the wrong way, I fear. I'm reading my Bible, and I'm seeing what the priority of Jesus was. There's always more that can be done. And Christians, we wear many hats, but our first prime directive is to make Christ known. You will never see a political sign on my lawn, as political as I am. Because I want to leave every door open to my neighbors to speak about Christ and not be mislabeled or misunderstood. I will forego certain things. What did Paul say? I've become all things so that I might make Christ known. It's our number one mission. And maybe this is the point that will sit firmest with some of you. We need to keep our mission focus. The second exhortation is see the sufficiency of Jesus. See the sufficiency of Jesus, the gospel, and his gifts for the mission. We can say what we know with the help of the Spirit, and it is sufficient. As one said, we learn the principle that the Lord's work can only be carried on in Christ's way, that is, on his terms. At the center of that is preaching. And it's speaking of Christ. And it's loving your neighbor. Boy, love. I don't know if that's going to change anyone. Oh, really? God so loved the world. Paul would tell the Corinthians in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. That it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. The ancient world was pretty sophisticated. But we preach Christ crucified, he says, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God has given us sufficient gifts for the mission. And finally, as we learn from the Herod example, we must see the necessity of putting your faith in Christ. We've got to tell our neighbors it's not enough simply to know about Jesus and think Jesus is okay. You need to trust him. Our work is not done until people put their faith in Christ. That's what the help and the healing is about, to to underline the message and the message to change the heart and to change the life and to add to the kingdom. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we trust that your word will pierce our hearts and minds today. 
even if we're already believers and disciples, may we get a fresh grip on the mission focus we should have. Father, may this stir us and and give us a fresh zeal for kingdom work. May we love Christ and make him known. May we speak often of our Jesus. May others know whom we love the most and who's helped us the most. Father, give us wisdom as a church. And may we be patient one with another in these days. May we display compassion as well as truth as we do the kingdom work. We ask this through the name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen. Amen.